You're listening to Talking Sense. We chat with experts about those need-to-know topics to help millennials get ahead. We ask the dumb questions. It's a platform to learn a little about a lot. another episode of Talking Sense and today we are talking about something a little bit different. We're breaking down politics and our political system. So to help us with that, we're here with John Slater. How are you going, John? Yeah, good, thanks. John, do you want to intro a little bit about yourself, how you know about politics, what your interest in politics is? So I've previously worked for a few members of federal parliament and I currently work for the Menzies Research Centre. So the Menzies Research Centre is an independent think tank associated with the Liberal Party of Australia. So we write policy reports, we analyse proposals by each major party and try and contribute to public debate. Cool. And you recently graduated uni, graduated with law and... Law arts, and my majors were history and political science. Seems quite fitting. Yeah, That's good. Does. So we, we've got a, an authoritative source for us today. <laughs> now, as always, we start our episodes with our financial five questions, so we'll jump straight into that. John, private or public health? Just gone on to private. Retail or self-managed super? Retail, but we'll hopefully change to self-managed some point in the future. Property. Do you consider it an investment tool or just for your home? Uh, probably more an investment. Shares. Self-managed or managed portfolio? Uh, self-managed. And cash money. Do you have a term deposit or use a high interest online account? Um, I actually do neither, which is pretty poor. I've just got it sitting in a regular account. Oh, you're going to have to listen back to some other episodes. Yeah. So. Okay, that's, that's good. That's all good. Right. So as we said earlier today, we're talking all about politics, which is relevant to pretty much everyone because we all vote and we probably some of us might not have the understanding that we probably should have when we're voting so they're going to start off with the very basics to kind of work out those terminologies so we are a democracy what is a democracy john so i guess the most basic point is that in a democracy the government is chosen in one way or another by the population. Now that doesn't have to mean that everyone in the country votes and it doesn't mean that the way or the means by which the government's elected has to be strictly majoritarian. So for example, in 2016 in the United States, Donald Trump was elected with 3 million less votes than Hillary Clinton. So it doesn't necessarily imply whoever gets the raw amount of votes wins, but the sort of the broad principle is that the government is chosen in one way or another by the people. Yes, we know we have an Australian Parliament, so let's talk about what actually is the Australian Parliament and how is it formed? So Australia's Parliament is actually a combination of the British Parliament and the American Congress, so their Parliament. So when they were drawing up what Australia's National Parliament would look like, they really liked um, in in Great Britain, the idea of a lower house where each member would represent a geographic locality, so an area of the country. And part of the logic there is when people live in the same area, they often have common interests. um, And that's been increasingly more the case over time. So a local representative who would be really the people's voice in the parliament, in the capital, the voice for the people who elected them back home. And then the upper house, which is the Senate. And our Senate's basically modelled off the United States Senate. So 
each state gets an equal number of senators and the two territories get just two senators. So the important principle there is that every state does get the same say in the Senate, even though New South Wales is about 12 times as big as Tasmania. And the logic behind that is before Australia became a federation, there were all different colonies who all had their own interests. They all had different sort of types of economies, different political environments. And so when they wanted to join together, they wanted not a, they wanted a bit of a safeguard for the interests of all the different states. And so that was um, basically making sure that the big populous states, Victoria and New South Wales, couldn't just dictate to the smaller states like Queensland, South Australia, Tasmania, and kind of make sure that um, they still had a meaningful say. Okay, so that's the House of Representatives and we have the Senate. So let's talk about the terminology of someone says the Australian government and where does the Governor General fall into all of that? So if you were to draw it up, I guess, on a, on a bit of a flow chart, the Governor General is right at the apex, right at the top of Australia's system of government. So the Governor General is basically the Queen or the monarch's representative in Australia. And so the Australian government is formed by whichever party or whichever combination of parties has the most number of seats in the lower house, the House of Representatives. And so what you'll see there is whatever whatever party is able to win the most amount of seats across Australia, they'll come together and they'll form a government. So there's 150 seats. So you need at a minimum 76 seats or 75 seats with the support of one or two people who aren't part of your party. And so that's how the government's formed. And so the government then is called the executive. And so that's where you'll have your ministers, the prime minister, and they exercise a whole range of powers which are different to parliament and they don't have to pass laws to exercise. So they, for example, have a lot of control over the immigration system. They've got a lot of control over the defence force, over Australian diplomacy, over trade, all sorts of things. And so the government, even though it gains its authority from parliament, really operates in a kind of its own sphere. And it has a lot of control over all the sort of big federal departments like the Treasury and that type of thing in Canberra. Now, the Governor General's role is, is even though they're at the top, it's mainly symbolic their job is basically they just need to be satisfied that whoever is in government does have the support of the majority of the house of representatives and that's basically just to make sure that it's you know at the at its highest australia doesn't devolve into a dictatorship and the the executive is still basically supported by the majority of parliament why is it that we have the two houses why do we need the senate and the house of reps so when they were coming up with the design for Australia's parliament, they looked at the United States and one thing that they thought that was quite laudable about their system was that the Senate applied a lot of scrutiny to laws passed by Congress. And so Congress would pass a law and the Senate would spend a long time combing over it, really coming, you know, scrutinising its provisions, deciding whether it's the best thing for the country. And in Australia, um, some of the people who, when Australia was formed, they, they were scared that a national parliament would have too much power. And so the idea of the Senate is it's a bit of a counterweight or a counterbalance to whichever party has the most amount of power. And so even in contemporary politics, we see that, for example, when Tony Abbott was elected in 2014, he wanted to make very radical changes to the age pension, to a whole range of different 
different welfare and social payments. And what stopped him from just going ahead with those measures, even though he had just won the election, was the fact that the Senate was comprised differently. It represented all the states equally. And they basically held him back and said, no, we need to take a look at this. And so the idea is at a fairly basic level that if you give one party or one entity too much power, we can have radical change and that might not always be good. Um, and so it's, it's really a stopgap to make sure the government doesn't amass too much power centrally. Yeah, right. How are people elected into the Senate? So when you go and vote, um, you ha- you basically preferentially choose different parties. So the, vo- the Senate voting system changed at the last election, but in short, you will get a big Senate paper and you'll number each party from one to about six. One to 12 if it's double dissolution like the last election, but otherwise one to six. And so, for example, if you put Palmer United Party number one, the Palmer United Party will then have candidates um, listed in order. So number one might be Clive Palmer, number two might be Jackie Lambie. And so your vote will then go to them and then if it's if they don't get enough for a quote, so they might get one quota, then if they get half half as many as they need for another quota, so for another seat, then those votes will then transfer to your second preference, which might be One Nation. Um, <laughs> and, so, and so it's kind of, it's um, the, basically it's designed so that the 12 senators in Queensland reflect not only who's the most popular, but there's kind of proportional representation. And so if 30% of people in Queensland like One Nation, 30% like the Greens, that will be reflected in who's elected. So it gets more diversity. Whereas if you look at the lower house, it's basically winner takes all. So if the Liberal National Party is the most popular party in Brisbane or in, a, in the seats in Brisbane, it will get all the seats, even if there's quite a sizable minority who don't support them and support the Greens or support Labor and so forth. And so the way people are elected in the Senate is designed to reflect the broad diversity of opinions in the community, I guess. So I think that's the the big difference. That's good to know. And so we have a federal election coming up and I think it's timely if we're talking about how you're elected into the House of Reps. You can't actually just go straight and vote for either Bill Shorten or... Scott Morrison. ScoMo. ScoMo. How, <laughs> how do the Prime Minister be chosen? So the leader of all the major parties, they're basically how they are chosen to be the leader of the party is a matter for those parties. And so if um, in, the, in the Liberal Party and the current government, the leader who then becomes the Prime Minister is elected basically by every Liberal member of parliament placing a vote and they decide who gets to lead their party. In the Labor Party, it's a little bit different. Half the say goes to people who are party members, people who have paid money to sign up to become a member of the Labor Party. And then half of the say goes to Labor politicians who sit in parliament. And so on a practical level, um, when you go to the ballot box, you won't be voting for Bill Shorten or Scott Morrison. But what you will be voting for is a local member who will go into most likely one of those two party rooms. And so in my current case, I'm in the electorate of Ryan and there's really three sort of serious candidates. There's Greens, Labor and an LNP candidate. And so if my object or what I wanted to get out of my vote was to elect a coalition government, I would vote for the LNP person. Then if they get over the line, they then will 
contribute towards forming that majority in the lower house so they can therefore then choose the executive who will be Scott Morrison and so forth. And so you're sort of indirectly voting for the leader, but the, the basic point is who you vote for to be your local member of parliament will then decide who becomes the prime minister. And that's all fairly well known when the election's called. So with the parties, a classic term to throw around is left wing or right wing. Can we just clarify what left wing and right wing is? Yeah, it's funny because those two terms, they are thrown around a lot, but a lot of people will really disagree on what they mean and they can mean different things in different contexts. And so in economics, right wing is today associated with less government control, less regulation, giving individuals and businesses more freedom to do what they want. And the kind of the logic underpinning that is that individuals and businesses will make good choices if they're left to their own devices and that'll grow the economy and that'll be good for Australia. The left-wing perspective on economics is that businesses are greedy. Well, not necessarily greedy, but they're driven by self-interest. And sometimes the way corporations and businesses act um, is not in the interests of the general public. And so that could be true in, for example, with respect to the environment. That could be true with respect to public health and a whole range of issues. And then the other the other big, I guess, left-wing perspective on economics is labour relations. So the interactions between workers and their bosses. And so a left-wing perspective says that workers are a lot more vulnerable than bosses. Bosses hold a lot of the bargaining power. And so if we just leave bosses and workers to their own devices, um, you'll find workers generally are not getting the best deal that might be getting exploited and so what we need is government to step in and play a more active role in supervising what's going on and making sure people are being treated fairly but also passing laws restricting what people can do so passing laws like the minimum wage is a fairly classic one um, but also things like environmental regulation um, and basically government and politics having a more interventionist role in how the economies run and sort of what direction it goes in. Mm. And so while we're still sort of on the topic of federal governments, because obviously we have the federal, we have state governments and we have local council members, if we're looking to see what the policies are of the federal government, they can only regulate a certain number of activities. I think that comes from, this is my constitutional law speaking within me now, section 51. <laughs> so there's certain things that we can look to for, this, for the federal government and certain things for the state government. So if you are looking at what the federal government can do, what are some things that they can regulate and how can you work out what their policies are so that you know when you're going to vote for a federal member at election next year for example yeah so i think this is this is probably one of the big sources of contention and disaffection with politics is you're right that if you sort of walk around and you just kind of observe the news from afar it's not really clear what functions of government lie at at which different level. And so there's a few really obvious ones which lie with the federal government, um, things like foreign affairs, uh, national defence, trade. But there's a whole range of other ones where there's overlapping responsibilities with the states, and that's things like road infrastructure, health and education. On oh, The other big one, actually, I should mention, which is the biggest expenditure item for the federal government is social services and welfare. So that's everything from New Start to childcare payments to pensions. So that's actually the thing which the Commonwealth, the federal government, spends the most amount of money on. But there's a whole, there's, there's quite complex, I guess you could say, relations between 
the federal government and the states in relation to those areas which really directly affect people's daily lives. So the quality of hospital care, how much people pay when they go to the GP, how much is covered by the government. And then again, as well, in terms of particularly those big infrastructure projects in the cities, like we're in Brisbane, for example, the something like the Cross River Rail, I believe, has funding from all three levels of government at this stage. And so the, there's a kind of the, the technical reason for that is, well, there's a sort of a, the political reason is the government, the federal government has found it politically, I guess, attractive to step in and play a bigger role in a lot of these areas as a way of making it look like they're doing things. And then the other problem is the federal government raises a lot more money than the states. And so the state governments don't actually physically have enough funds to run all the schools, run all the hospitals and do all the things we expect them to do. And so they need to go and ask the federal government for money. Um, and so that negotiation process is quite messy. And I think that that sort of that lack of clear lines of accountability is one of the big, probably the big sort of picture issues with the way government works in Australia. And so it doesn't actually matter if there's a, say, a Liberal government elected at the federal level and then there's a Labor government at state level, they can still work together to get funding for the same projects. That's right, but that's often a point of, I guess you could say, contention. Um, An interesting one was the Gonski School Education Funding Reforms that Julia Gillard spearheaded in about 2013. The the state governments, which were Liberal national governments, were not that sympathetic to the Labor government pursuing this. But then when the Tony Abbott took power and then subsequently Malcolm Turnbull, they tried to draw down on those funding commitments and then the state Labor governments had a big fit about them not giving as much money as was originally promised by Julia Gillard. So I guess that's a, that's a long way of saying that politically that is a bit of a hot button issue and the most obvious reason for it is that it's really easy for for example a state liberal government to foist blame onto Canberra if it's a Labor government in Canberra so I think that that kind of that party bickering does colour a lot of the interactions between the Commonwealth and the states and is a sort of ongoing problem. Okay so obviously before a party is elected so we have the federal election coming up next year and we know that these parties make promises to what amount of money they will spend somewhere. So they need to find that money from somewhere else. So, for example, I think I heard on the radio this morning that if Bill Shorten is elected for next election, that he will change the franking credits policy to do with dividends and use the money that he saves there and spend that on schools. So how can people become more informed as to what policies will happen and how often do politicians actually have to stick to what they say before and after an election? Yeah, so I think that the on what's the best way to stay informed about what policies are kind of being put forward by either party. I think reading a good quality newspaper is a good way of keeping tabs on it. You can as well just look at the websites of either major parties in the lead up to the election campaign, but that will also include a lot of spin. And so I think that if you get a good quality, the two probably the best quality in-depth reporting on these types of things would be the Financial Review and the Australian. But I think that reading a variety of sources is useful. On the question of whether a party has to stick by what they're saying, when the parties raise figures about how much money they're going to raise from tax changes and 
and what that money is going to be spent on. That might be a little bit exaggerated, but because the budget office costs a lot of these things, the parliamentary budget office, you know that it's not completely made up. So for example, Labor's plan changes to negative gearing. I can't remember off the top of my head exactly how much they're expected to raise, but you can be reasonably assured that that figure will have some basis. It may be more than it raises, it may be less, Um, but you can sort of reasonably rely on those things. But in terms of the actual question of when a party is elected to government, how, how can they be held accountable to that? The answer is that fairly often parties will squib their former commitments. And so probably the most recent example of that would be before the 2013 election, Tony Abbott said he wasn't going to make any cuts to the ABC health or education. And then they undertook basically an audit of the federal budget and it became clear that the deficit was bigger and worse than they're expecting. And he went, he reneged on those promises, but what he did was he reduced how much would be increased in the future. And so there's debate over whether that's a cut, but basically the the answer is you can't hold politicians to it. And the classic, classic line there is John Howard went after he was elected, he changed a whole lot of his policies and he he said that there were core promises which he was bound to keep and then there are non-core promises which he then discarded and so the the biggest form of accountability there is the fact that they have to face an election again in two and a half or three years so it's really up to the voting public to make sure politicians do actually follow through with what they promise. So in the last 10 years or so we've had a number of different prime ministers a bit of a revolving door situation how has this really happened what causes it and will this continue to happen? So I think that there's there's two broad categories of reasons for why Australia basically hasn't been able to keep a prime minister for longer than three years and three days which was when Julia Gillard was Prime Minister. So I think since John Howard lost the election in 2007, Mm -hmm. there's been five different Prime Ministers and there's been six different stints because Kevin Rudd was Prime Minister twice. I think that the the first obvious reasons is that the, the people who have been leading both the Labor Party and the Liberal Party, there's been issues with their leadership and how they've led the party. And so until Labor changed its rules, both major parties, you were only prime minister so long as you retained the confidence of your colleagues. And so both, I think that if you look at every prime minister since 2007, all of them have taken missteps that have damaged their public profile that have really hurt the the popularity of the government and caused their colleagues to lose trust in them and so i think that that's a that's the first order cause and it's important to remember that um you know the media covers the axing of a prime minister as though virtually it's been a coup and they actually use the language of a coup but it's always been envisaged that in australia's system just like the british system just like new zealand system that this can happen when when a prime minister is elected they're not elected it for the but guaranteed for the duration of their term the people who decide um the people in the the party who win the election decide who the leader is but that can actually change at any point and so we can't really escape the conclusion that Kevin Rudd, Julia Gillard, Malcolm Turnbull and Tony Abbott, whether it was their fault, whether it was their colleagues' fault, there was a breakdown in relations which lose them to, which led them to lose the support of their colleagues. Now, there's probably reasons for that 
which are internal to their party. For example, in the Labor Party, Kevin Rudd didn't have any background in the trade union movement and the trade union movement holds a huge amount of power in the Labor Party and so critics of Kevin Rudd will often say that he was on borrowed time he was only going to be the leader so long as he kept the unions happy and when he stopped keeping the unions happy then he was booted out then likewise with Tony Abbott there's in the media they often talk about in the Liberal Party there's a divide between moderates people who are you know believe in the liberal ethos for or economic reasons, but they're not as strong on the social conservatism. And then the others who are, you know, more conservative and, you know, have a, have a much more traditionalist outlook on politics. And so you could say that structurally both Tony Abbott and Malcolm Turnbull had a section of their party that was always against them. And that when they started performing badly, then those people started working to undermine them. And so I guess you could say that the makeup of the parties at the moment, they aren't really united there's conflict within the parties and what that means is then the when the leader makes a mistake a lot of their colleagues are more likely to bite back and try and undermine them now i think that the then probably the third and broadest cause is the nature of the media in Australia has changed quite a lot in the last 15 years or so. So when, for example, Bob Hawke was Prime Minister, the amount of time he would have spent during his day in front of a camera was far, far less than what Scott Morrison would spend now. And what we have in Australia now is not only 24 7 News, which only really started to take off about 10 years ago. Um, You have social media and you have, I guess, a lot of news outlets and websites that are always looking for content. And the amount of opinion content and editorial content has increased as well. So we have really talkback radio, we have commercial television, we have pay television, we have social media, and all of those forces need to be kept happy. And so John Howard, for example, the amount of his day which he spent talking to the media, trying to satisfy the media, was far, far less than it is today. And so I think that what what that means is, you know, in the case of Malcolm Turnbull, when there were issues over the national guarantee, national energy guarantee, which was their big sort of energy reliability policy, uh, what that meant was when, when there were divisions, the media was able to amplify that and create a real sense of chaos in a way that just wasn't really the case in the 1980s. And so people often talk about the 24-7 media cycle as a bit of a feeding frenzy. And so I think political leaders are under a lot of pressure to constantly project a sense of purpose, a sense of action, a sense that they're getting things done. And the, the media environment makes that quite difficult to do. I think that is true. The amount of times you hear anything about politics. Mm. And I remember when, gets amplified. Yeah, when Malcolm Turnbull was first talking about the National Energy Guarantee, and it was quite n- nice discussions. And then within a week, he was out. And it's mm. in- incredible to see how quickly things can change and yeah, what media perception can do. So I guess because we've had so many different prime ministers, I think that a lot of younger people, so we're targeting millennials here, don't have a lot of trust in the political system. It's almost a little bit em- embarrassing that there's so many different politicians. So do you see that changing and how do you see that people can become more trusting in democracy or, and is that important? Well, I think it is important because if people don't trust democracy, 
then they're less likely to get involved themselves. Getting involved doesn't mean you have to run for an election, but it could mean, for example, supporting a cause that you really care about as a way of trying to influence politics. And so if you think that the whole system's broken, you're less likely to engage with it yourself. And then if people like you who think like you aren't engaging with it, then the system becomes less responsive to your views and you'll probably find the system is even more so drifting away from, I guess, what your priorities are. And so a lot of young people, for example, care about climate change. And if you care about climate change, a great thing to do would be to join, for example, GetUp or the Australian Youth Climate Change Coalition and get involved in those organisations and use them to talk to politicians, use them to draw attention to these issues. And what you find is that will affect the climate of opinion. And even though it's hard, even though there's a lag, that will hopefully then have an influence on policy making down the track. Now, it is sort of a long game. Um, It might be five years down the track, 10 years down the track. But if people simply opt out and they say, there's no point, nothing's going to change, and they retreat into their own lives, if society en masse does that, what you'll find is the political class and the people who do run the government become even more detached from the needs and concerns of everyday people. So I'd probably say say to people that, you know, even if you're cynical about politics, um, one of the best things we could, ha- we could that could happen for our system is for more and more people to get involved in some kind of political engagement, some kind of political advocacy, even if it's just joining a group about a cause you're passionate about, because the more different voices we have contributing to public debate, the more likely we're going to have governments which actually listen to the concerns of people. And so if you're really passionate about a party and you join that party and then you you campaign for them, that's a really direct way of getting involved. But what we've actually seen in Australia is since Robert Menzies was in power, the number of people who are in political parties hasn't just shrunk, it's less than 10% of what it used to be, even though Australia's population has more than doubled. Um, And so that has one really big consequence, which is that the people who are then chosen to represent that party in parliament are less likely to be representative of the average person. And so if you have, for example, in your electorate, the Liberal National Party candidate is only chosen by 30 people who rock up to a meeting and those 30 people are political junkies, but they don't really know what's affecting the, you know, the lives of families and other households in their area. The, the candidate who's then chosen for that is less likely to be as representative of the broader public as you would hope. And that's how you get that kind of fracturing and that splintering where people feel even more disconnected from politics and even more disconnected from the government. So I think, you know, there is an issue with millennials distrusting government, particularly being very disenchanted with the state of politics. But I think that the cure for that is not just to boycott the system, but people should, you know, try and have a better attitude towards engaging because in the long term, that's going to help restore public trust, I think. Awesome. Well, I think that's probably most of our politics covered. We traditionally cover topics that are for people to get ahead. And so that's what our tagline is. And so we talk about super insurance and tax, but we thought today that talking about politics was super relevant because it it seems like politics play a lot into all the topics we talk about such as super such as tax and maybe before we leave just a couple of important things if you are interested in superannuation you are interested in salary sacrificing or anything what sort of things should you look out for at the next election so in terms of um the 
probably the biggest one affecting millennials are Labor's planned changes to negative gearing. And so at a really basic level, negative gearing means if you negative gear a property, you, you can't negative gear it if you live in it, but you have a property that's an investment. If the amount of money you spend on repaying the mortgage and looking after the property, so paying rates, uh, maintaining it and so forth, if that's greater than the amount you receive in rent, you can take the difference of that and use it to as a write-off on your income tax bill. And so let's say if I lose $15,000 on a property that I'm renting, I spend $15,000 more on it in a year than I get back in rent, I can use that to then as a deduction for my income tax. And so Labor wants to basically end that. So it only applies to new properties. And the other part of that as well is they're gonna halve the capital gains discount. So if you then sell that property in 10 years and you make $100,000, let's say, you'll pay twice as much tax on that. Now, the, the rationale for them doing that is it's argued that this will improve housing affordability. There are sort of some questions about that, but what that means for people who are millennials is if you want to invest in property in the future, um, and that's kind of what you see as a, a way of building your net wealth, Labor's changes will have pretty profound, I guess, implications in terms of you know what properties you can buy and how, how, how affordable it will be on a week-to-week basis for you to service a rental property while meeting all your other living expenses. All right. Well, that was great. I love that we can tie yeah. it all back together to Thank everything you. we talk about. <laughs> So, expert, John. Yeah. I'm like, I'll probably give you any year and you can tell yes, us the Prime Minister or the party. That was great. All right. So for our listeners out there, if you've liked what you've heard today, give us a follow on Instagram, a five star on Apple Podcasts. You can check out John. This is John Slater. He often actually writes for the Fin Review. Some very interesting articles. He's very informed. So have a look out. I think for we've seen him on TV. Yeah, I well. John sometimes appears on TV too. So very got a famous guest on today, actually. Um, and that's probably all for today. Yeah. Tune in next episode. 